Hey, Don's fans, Jonathan Walsh here, and welcome to another episode of Don the Stat. Joined once again by my trusty co-host, Ian Humey Hume. Humey, how's things, mate? Things are great, and yeah, love being back talking talking about the Bombers. It's a, my favourite time of the week, really, when we have our discussions about how, how the team's going and, and where they're headed. So, yeah, really looking forward to getting into this episode. We've got some great questions from our audience that we're really keen to get stuck into. Yeah, and it's good that we are here to talk to it because there's a or talk about it because there's a real void in in coverage of Essendon, particularly in you know the likes of News Limited publications at the moment. They they don't seem to want to talk about us at all. Um, yeah, tongue in cheek, of course, given some of the rubbish that that Mark Robinson's been uh, writing about lately. But yeah, we, we did have some great. Questions and also heaps of good feedback on on our interview or our, our catch up with Rick Edwards uh, last week about how preseason training is going. And thanks again to to Rick or, or Bomber Rico as he is on Twitter for for getting involved and, and joining us on that one. He he had such great insight to share and, and he has a lot of knowledge of uh, of how we train you know this year and, and in compared to previous years. So thanks Rick for for all of that and and also your interview, mate with uh, with Greg Martin. I, I, you know it was great to hear about. Uh, Greg and his sons Nick's, um, uh, you know, uh, transition from waffle footy into AFL last year. But uh, I really enjoyed hearing you guys wax lyrical about the education system and teachers and and the impact you're you're both having on um, on you know the future of our of our country. So yeah, how how did you find uh, having a chat with Greg? Oh, it was fantastic. He was really generous with his time. We initially planned a half an hour chat, and then it extended to almost almost an hour. So I was, I was really grateful. He was so positive and so passionate for a side that he's only just followed for a year. That was one of my big takeaways. I was a bit surprised at how, how much he's in, although I guess the Bombers have, have given his son his dream. So you can sort of see where that comes from and, and just hearing some of Nick's story and and the, and the like, you know, really made me feel positive about where he's headed and, and his mindset and his commitment to, to Essendon. So, yeah, really glad that I reached out to him and that he agreed to do it and really pleased with the feedback that we've gotten on that. I'm enjoying doing these. I know I'm not the best interviewer, but I feel like I'm getting better. And hopefully by the end of this season, I'll, you know, I'll have media companies uh, approaching me to take over. Yeah. I doubt it. Out, man. Um, uh, Bruce, yeah. yeah. There's been a big uh, gap to fill since Bruce retired. So who knows, mate, we might see you there, but I think well, the, yeah. I, I think the, the other bit that stood out, we, we lose, site when we have a, a year like we did last year we sort of assume that because on field's going poorly and and all the things that happen off field that everything is bad but yeah you know, nick martin is a good example of of you know our talent identification working really well and and we found a, a diamond in the rough but also greg's feedback about how they the club helped him settle in and and the people around the club that have enabled that to happen and get the best out of him last year i think is a really good sign that that you know, there's still a lot of really good things about the Essendon Football Club and, and that's a really good example and, and hopefully that's something that we continue to build on and, and we see more of that good stuff and less of the the not good stuff. But I guess, you know, moving on, there's, there's been a little bit of chatter in the in the media beside the the Mark Robinson stuff that's been going on in the, in the paper and, and probably the the biggest talking point has been Brad Scott's interview last night on Channel 7 with with Tim Watson. I admittedly haven't seen the full interview and, and I actually did that by choice. So, I, I, you know, as I've shared, I'm someone who likes to make my own mind up uh, based on what I see rather than buying too much into to the dialogue. I, I did uh, catch the his comments about Waller. I, I, I saw that on Twitter just then. Uh, Charlie shared a really good clip of that. And I, I liked his message there about you know, how important it was that if Waller was going to play footy this year, that it was at Essendon. And, and I liked his, his use of the word we already, um, which was, which I think is, you know, subliminal, but also quite powerful. The other thing that he mentioned that, that did prick my ears, which aligns to some of the other uh, things I've observed and heard is that we do have some tailored programs for a number of players. And, and I do think that's the way it should be given the injury history of the club and and some individuals. So I think that's probably why we're seeing some more individuals in rehab, particularly for short bursts of times than than maybe we would like. And and maybe there's a bit of an underlying message there that that we don't need to worry too much about it, that there's a bit of a plan going on. Um, But yeah, I, I really liked it. And I think overall, just tapping into some of the commentary around it, I think, you know, Brad Scott's a, 
a really senior, experienced leader. He's been there, done that as a player and a coach. Uh, if I was in his shoes, I'd be doing what he's doing, and that's you know under promise and and then aim to over deliver. And I'm sure there's a very that message of patience that he's delivering to the supporter base. I'm sure there's a very different message uh, going on behind closed doors when he's talking to his players. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I'm, there wasn't he's really guarded there and not hyping up things too much and sort of lowering those expectations. And I think that, that does frustrate some people, you know, particularly because it's so long since Essendon's had success that, that they're getting a bit impatient. But I think we, we've we gone for the short-term options quite often in the past decade. I think we need to give this some time and see how this plays out with a, with a patient, experienced coach like Brad is. Yeah, completely agree, mate. And then, there's been a couple of other media grabs of late, uh, you know, probably some that haven't been thought through and or quite as articulate as well, at least one that wasn't as as Brad Scott's comments last night. But Kane Corns was one that grabbed my eye and grabbed yours with his suggestion that we should throw a million dollars at at Tom DeConing, uh, which was an interesting one. That Of course, the Carlton Ruckman come sort of pseudo forward. Uh, what What did you think of that? Oh, I'm not even sure we should be addressing this because it's a bit of low-hanging fruit. I mean, dunking on Caden Corns is like taking candy from a baby. And I, it, it makes him it makes him happy that people are talking about him at all. But just to address the idea in general, I know there's probably some Bombers fans out there that wouldn't want to touch the Carlton player and wouldn't rate them because of the jersey they wear. But Tom DeConig is a really good player and he, he's still quite young and he may even become great. But in my mind, he's not a great fit for Essendon. As we've seen, his preferred position is in the ruck. Even putting aside a developing ruck in Brian, we already have a ruckman that is trending towards a top five in the comp in Draper. I think you showed me some stats of his ruck work that suggests that he's really been really, even if his own game isn't a dominant one yet, he's been really good at nullifying the effect of the opposition ruck. And so given the amount of draft capital you'd have to get Tom DeKoenig, I don't think it's really worth that much for a minor improvement on what already is trending to be a strength and the other suggestion Kane Corns made was to use him as a forward. Now, it may be due to lack of opportunity because Carlton have Kerno and McKay, uh, but he only kicked four goals in season 2022. Now, to go out and spend, put a million-dollar contract and probably have to pay two first-round draft picks to get a player like Tom DeConig to play forward when his last season was was four goals, you can't have any confidence that it'd be worth the price to pay as a forward at this stage. That doesn't mean I don't necessarily put an offer in uh, if I only push up the price that Carlton have to pay f- to retain him, given their high profile acquisitions and high level of quality players. They seem to be very, from the outside, they seem to be a very top heavy list in terms of their talent. Uh, I would imagine that their salary cap is pretty tight and that may lead to other players being pushed out that you might be more interested in. Yeah. I, I mean, you, realistically, we would be hoping that by the time Nick Bryan hits Tom DeConing's age and experience, he's got sort of two or three years on him, that that he will go past the, you know, where DeConing's at now and especially as a ruckman. And, and then, you know, I, I don't see him uh, developing into a forward. He's he's 23 or, or, or 24 now. Uh, if you're going to spend a million dollars on a guy you're going to play forward, then you'd be knocking at the door of, uh, you know, the King brothers manager and, and several others before you get to, to Tom DeConing. And even in his under 18 year or his, his um, tap couple NAB league years, he was averaging, you know, under two goals a game as a bit of a ruck forward. So he certainly wasn't someone that said even at that age that he's going to be a million dollar a year AFL key forward. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just. Kane looking for some clicks and some um, and some entertainment, but uh, yeah, a, a, an interesting one to to talk about how he might fit. And I think the answer is he, he wouldn't be worth the investment for us. Well, the other one that we wanted to address was David King, who did actually go witness an Essendon training session, so that gives him a bit more clout to talk about things Essendon than some of the others in the media. But his two key takeaways from when he went down was Draper being forward of centre more and. Jai Menzi as sort of the wildcard player that might come up that people aren't expecting. Now, starting with Menzi, I think he has a real opportunity this year, given that the pecking order is not at all set when it comes to the small forwards. Uh, obviously, Guelphie played that role pretty well last year, but I don't necessarily think that means he's set in stone 
for the coming year. Obviously, having Waller back is really positive, but again, we don't know where he's going to be at at the start of the season. As to Menzi, uh, the fact that he's going to have his first AFL preseason is going to give him a massive leg up on where he was at last year. His skills look great, and he's definitely creative in front of goals. The one area that I'm looking for him to improve, and, and this is what would get him into the side for me, is that he improves on his tackling. Without Waller there last year, we really lacked a pressure forward. Now, Manzi's tackle numbers did improve as he played more VFL games, but it's still my major concern as whether he'll be able to make it in that role. And as to Draper, you know, we saw at the end of last year that he can be a forward threat. He kicked nine goals from the last 11 games as opposed to three in the first. I think... From that, his contested marking is just as important as his goal-kicking threat because that means he's being a, a presence around the ground. He's potentially cutting off opposition forays into their forward line. And if he's taking contested marks, he's going to be doing that in the forward line and getting goal-kicking opportunities. So for Draper, his contested marking average per game last year was 0.8. If you compare that to arguably the best in the comp in Max Gorn, he averaged 25 So I'm not expecting him to pull max score numbers straight away this year, but if he can get that number to one and a half a game, then I would consider that to be really good progress in that area. Yeah, I I think you're right. They were really good observations by by David King. I I think for me, Menzies isn't a wild card. He he probably isn't for most Essen fans. You know, you'd naturally expect Don's fans to be a little bit closer to, to his trajectory, but we ultimately cherry picked him in the mid-season draft last year for a reason. Uh, granted, one thing that's changed since now and then is we we effectively drafted him as a as a replacement for Waller, and and now Waller's come back out of retirement. But he he had really strong form in the Sandfall. He, he's a bit more of a mature body, and uh, and a a bit of a more of a known quantity, I think, in terms of what he. Uh, the prototype of what he can offer, I guess. He's still got to prove himself at AFL level, but we we really know the type of player that he is. I think what has surprised me in some of the footage that I've seen over the preseason is his ability overhead. I think he's got some tricks there that and some strengths there that, that I hadn't anticipated. But, yeah, for me, he's not really a wild card. I'm subject to how he goes in the two trial games. I'm, I'm picking him in round one at the moment. And he strikes me as someone who he's going to do absolutely everything to make the most of his chance and, and get the best out of himself. I don't think he's going to leave any stone unturned on, on Draper. He, he could be anything. He He's only played, you know, 40 odd games. He, he hasn't hit that 50 game milestone yet. And, and I don't think Ruckman really mature and, and get to their, their peak of their powers until they get closer to 150 games, let alone, let alone 50. So he's still got a long way to go in his development. And what we'll see from him, I, I expect as that happens is the gaps between his best and worst will shrink. And he'll also be involved in games for longer. So, so more four quarter efforts, I guess, to, to use a bit of a cliche. I think to play him anywhere, subject to form and fitness, to play him anywhere that's not in the ruck is only going to to slow down his development. And in a year where, yeah, I, where I think we can improve significantly on last year and win more games of football than we did in 2022, that is still fundamentally about development and finding a, a team of players or a squad of players that's going to take us towards our next flag. Draper is a fundamental piece of that. And I think we just need to develop his ruck craft uh, and ruck skill and his positioning around the ground as, as best as we possibly can. And, and I think playing him forward of centre or, or playing him as a forward is um, is is going to take away from that. What I do think he needs to add to his game, though, is his reading of the play to move forward from a ruck position and kick more goals. I do think we saw that, though, saw an improvement in that area towards the end of last season anyway. So I think he's on a on a pathway that's suggesting he's going to do that. Yeah, I think we're all excited about what Draper could become. And as you say, as long as it gets that run of games in, then we should see that natural progression there. We're going to be getting to our audience questions now and going through those. Again, we're really pleased with the quality of questions that we've been getting. People are putting a lot of thought into these and that not only are they asking good questions, they're also providing really good understanding of of ideas themselves so hopefully we can add some some insight or some perspective on on some of these ideas that really help people's understanding of, of where Essendon's at and and other things about football so yeah let's get into it uh so the first question we've got is from Liam Mannix now 
His question was, Essendon was excellent at centre bounce clearances, but poor at stoppage clearances. What could explain this? And so Liam already posed the theory that if big body midfielders play more of a role at stoppage than centre bounces, and he's asked us if that's true. And so, I mean, if you look at the the general figures, Essendon ranked fourth for centre clearances on average per game last year, as opposed to 17th for stoppage clearances. And one of the common complaints about Essendon's midfield over the past few years, especially since Watson and then Myers retired, is the lack of size in there. And so when he posted that theory, my first instinct was to agree. And then as as you've told me, and I think Shory told you, um, trust your eye and then go looking for the stats to support. So what I did was I went to the top 20 centre clearance winners and the top 20 stoppage clearance winners from last year. And then I tracked them by height and weight. And so when I did that though, and you, you averaged out the, the heights and weights of those players between the top 20 stoppage clearance winners, winners and the top 20 uh, centre clearance winners, they basically come out identical on average. Now, there, there is a slight difference there is there are six sub 180 centimetre players on the centre clearance list compared with four for stoppage clearances, whereas there are six plus 190 uh, stoppage clearance players, and that includes one Ruckman in Sean Darcy, compared with four for centre clearances. But the differences are marginal at best. So that that made me go look a bit deeper and start thinking about it a bit more. So I reckon it's going back to the theory, even though the stats don't necessarily prove it directly, I still think it's true, but I think it has more to do with the support of the ball winner as opposed to winning the ball themselves at size plays a big part. So at centre clearances, there's obviously a lot more space to operate, meaning the smaller players don't need as much protection to get the ball. They're also more likely to be on the move when they collect the ball and therefore can evade tackles more easily. At stoppage, it's a lot more congested and the players are less likely to hit the ball at speed. Therefore, those bigger bodies are better for not only breaking out of tackles, but blocking to create space for others to operate. Therefore, I would say that's part of the inability of Essendon to seemingly do well at stoppage clearances that the big bodies prevent uh, the blocking to be as effective as it could be. Yeah, as, as a rule, I think you're right that size is important uh, and and more so than height. You know, the, the ball's on the ground, right? So I don't think height's playing a big role in teams or, or individuals' ability to, to win stoppage clearances. I think what does come with height is more size and that bulk does allow players to create space for the, the better ball winners or and or themselves. Uh, I think the, the key difference is in the dynamics of the two is in the centre, the Ruckman also gets a big run and jump at it and Draper as a really athletic Ruckman, that really suits him, particularly against some of the the, the less agile Ruckman, uh, he can jump over them and, and and get us an ascendancy in centre clearances. Because the Ruckman comes side by side in, in stoppages, he loses that. Uh, in the centre, also, your, your mids can get on the move and there's less congestion and, and, and more space. So when Shield, Dylan Shield, who's got that real burst of speed and, and he was the for you know, towards the latter part of the year was the number one center clearance midfielder in, in the comp. I, I think he got pipped in the last game. But he, when he's accelerating away from a center clearance, he's accelerating away from a Ruckman and three midfielders. Instead of at stoppage where there's a Ruckman, there's three mids, there's a couple of wingers, there's, you know, a couple of halfbacks and half forwards, and it's a real congested area. So it, it, it's a lot harder to do. There's less space to operate in. I think the thing that is also useful to look at uh, as some further context here is as a rule, we're actually okay in winning a fair share of percentages. Our average differential, i.e. how we performed against our direct opponent each week was only minus 0.7 a game. So we were on average losing stoppages by less than one a game. So we were all but breaking even. And that was a slight improvement on 2021 where we, we lost by an average of 1.1. So, you know, it, it's not that bad, and and in fact, in the in that patch where we were playing some good footy between, yeah, you know, we beat St Kilda and, and got that big win against them, and, and then through to when we beat North in round twenty, we we were winning stoppages by plus two point three a game on average in that sort of six or seven week stretch, and and that includes losing them by six in um, that big win against North. So, you know, plus two point three when we were playing good footy shows that we we can win our fair share of stoppage ball. Uh, and, and for context and on what that means across the competition, the Bulldogs were number one across the year at, at plus 4.9 and Freo was second at, at plus 2.8. So it did drop away a bit from first to second. Uh, where we rank 
badly um, was, um, well, sorry, on, on that average differential, we ranked 12th in the comp. So uh, Richmond was last. They were minus 3.5. So it was sort of closer to second than we were to, to last, uh, even though we ranked 12th. So, yeah, I don't think it's all that bad, but we were 17th for total stoppage clearance wins. And I think when you when you look at that and you think about that, uh, you know, we've had the less the least number of stoppages in the competition. And, and it's hard to know whether that's by design because the coaches perceived that it was a weakness and, and therefore wanted to keep the ball on the outside or it was a perceived not stoppages themselves, but opposition perceive that if they keep the ball out on space, out in space, that that they're going to get an ascendancy with our lack of ability to to defend. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to really say, but I, I think um, ultimately our inability to lock the ball in and force stoppages has played a role in in why we had so few of them and ranked seventeenth for total stoppage clearance wins. Um, but yeah, like I said, like you know. When we were good, we were really good at it. I think the other thing that none of this really talks to is the effectiveness of of stoppages. You know, do we score when we win them, or do we just turn it over, or and do we concede scores uh, when we lose them? And and that data, unfortunately, we don't have. And I think above all of that, you know, looking at the data and the numbers, it, it's definitely something that we need to improve. I think the in, in introduction of of Perkins uh, and Martin, uh, I I got a smile today when I saw that he was involved in some of the stoppage work in the in the match sim today. Because as you know, I'm hot on him going in there. Um, Hobbs, an improved fitter, Parish. You know, Parish was the number one clearance player in the comp in 2021. The development of Coldwell, and then we've recruited Setterfield as well. So you know, we we've got some developing players as well as some experience to come back in there to to have an impact and improve that part of our game. Yeah, it's something to really keep an eye on in the coming year to see what emphasis the coaches have placed on that. Our next question comes from one of our Patreons, Gail Taylor. Uh, Gail asks if our kicking accuracy has improved. Now, unfortunately, uh, with a full-time job, I can't get to training to, to see in person. Uh, but obviously we spoke with uh, Rick last week and have also asked uh, Charlie Dons on Twitter for their thoughts. And according to both of them, they don't notice any major difference in infield kicking skill, although they also they also have said that there's been a real emphasis on goal kicking. And so that conversion there. Uh, for us, I guess it's something we'll have to wait until we see how they start performing in the practice matches. But just on that that idea in general, if you went solely by the stats, and again, I don't have a breakdown between dispose uh, handball and kicking efficiency. I've only got access to disposal efficiency. We actually had the highest disposal efficiency of any club last year. So on one hand, you think, okay, they're, they're actually disposing quite well. But I, that's misleading because it's one of those furfies that can happen with stats. If you think about it, a lot of our disposals were short kicks and handballs. And if you imagine you have a, a five handball chain where the four first four are successful, but the fifth leads to a turnover, you've got 80% disposal efficiency, but there's also every chance that you've just conceded an inside 50 or a goal. So it can sometimes be misleading. And it also depends on what the team is trying to do. So if you think about the Hawthorne uh, three-peat team, they were a high dis- kicking efficiency team because that's how they were designed to play. And so they were topping the charts for disposal efficiency in those years. And if you look at Richmond, they weren't as worried about disposal efficiency and they were often at the bottom of the charts there. Having having high levels of, of kicking efficiency isn't necessarily a guarantee of success. It's more about how you are looking to use it. Based on what I've heard in the in the media and again, from the training watches, there seems to be more an eff- emphasis on longer kicking into the forward line much quicker. I would expect to see our disposal efficiency drop, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to be as effective uh, or even we might be more effective with that style of play. Yeah, I think that the two most important kicks in football is the one out of your defensive half and and the one into your defensive, uh, sorry, into your forward 50. So, and and they're two that we, we routinely didn't do well enough last year and and you know it's hard to measure those um with the data that we've got but you know kicking kicking efficiency is obviously a skill within itself you know kicking skills that uh you know you 
We've, you've got good guys that are good at it and you've got guys that aren't so good. But it's also a symptom of how you play, which is which is very much what you're you're touching on, that that connection between zones, your backs to your mids, your, your mids to your forwards. The work rate of your players to find space and, and, and create an outlet kick, which we weren't good at last year. It's obviously easier to hit a target when someone's in space and on their own than it is when they're, you know, up against a two-on-one or, or having to try and poke into a small little gap. So uh, I think improving... The our ball movement as a whole is going to improve the maybe not the the kicking efficiency as a statistic, but certainly the kicking effectiveness of our game plan and our ability to move the ball forward and and have more shots on goal. I think the other thing that will come is some of that instinct and predictability that comes with having a bit more of a settled time side and some some more experience. So. You know, Nick Martin would have had no idea where Ben Hobbs runs last year. That they, they would have been, um, you know, making it up as they go along. So, just that continuity of guys training together, having a preseason together, and then playing games together last year as well, I think is going to to aid that. And then the rest will ultimately come down to what style of game plan does um, does Brad Scott want us playing. And, and I think we'll learn more about that in the in the two practice matches coming up in a few weeks' time. Yeah, really as. As we've sort of said throughout the show tonight, we're really looking forward to seeing those early signs of what they're intending to do. Now, uh, the next three questions we've decided to group because they're all sort of asking a similar thing. Uh, two are from from patrons, uh, Mike Reed and Silvertop Hurls, and also Craig McGill, uh, who's really good interacting with us on Twitter, have all sort of asked similar questions about the idea of what metrics are you looking at to, to demonstrate success for the year? And also what we consider to be underrated stats when measuring how how a team is going. So my takeaway from that was obviously a few to focus on. Uh, building up some of the ideas that came out of Liam's question, really want to thank uh, Anthrop on Twitter who sent us through that stoppage clearance data. Uh, really opened my eyes to a to a few things. As as you said, we we generated the lowest amount of of stoppages in the competition last year and. We know that one of the big concerns that people had with Harrison and was playing was the uh, ease that it seemed that teams could move the ball from our forward our our forward line to their forward line without you know any interruptions or stop or stoppage there. So I would be looking at increasing the amount of stoppages as potentially a way of seeing if we as a as a metric to see if we are improving in that area. And I think I think that's something they they will be working on, and I expect to see that go up. Uh, also limiting consecutive goals against, I think many of us have bemoaned the fact that Essendon often gave up, you know, a series of goals in a row. And that often undid a lot of good work that the team had done up to that point. But the big one for me is intercept turnover differential. So these, these terms are in inversely proportional to each other. But basically, since 2015, all teams that have won the premiership have been in the top four for intercept differentials. That means they generate more intercepts per game than their opposition. The only one that doesn't did, didn't do that was the Bulldogs, who have been a bit of an outlier. But it's one of the most consistent stats I've seen that can demonstrate whether a team is premiership quality. Sesson was actually ninth in 2022. So and basically broke even for the amount of intercepts for and against. Uh, but you want to start moving that number into a positive direction. So again, in, in terms of looking at progress, having a plus one average differential will be a good base to work off heading into the following year in 2024. Yeah, I, I love these questions. And if we had the the full champion data package, I uh, there would be a lot of stats that I'd like to track. I'd I'd, I'd have to remortgage my home. Uh, to be able to afford the license and then I'd probably be without a job because I'd, I'd spend all my time in champion data instead of doing my day job. But uh, yeah, we, we've got the same access as, uh, to data as everyone else does and, and they're the stats that, you know, the AFL and, and you know, Footy Wire and the like publish. So uh, I'm going to base it uh, against them, um, you know, because, you know, ideally I'd like to see, you know, time in our forward half of being able to keep the ball in our front half more often. Scores from source is, it would be a really good one to track. Are we conceding less goals from transition, less goals from kick-ins and the like, you know, stoppages versus turnover among others. But, uh, yeah, we won't have access to those. I think the the number one thing that I'm, I'm hoping to see this year is 
how our forwards get involved in the way that we defend the ground. And uh, you stole my thunder uh, rightly with uh, with intercepts and turnovers because I think that's a really good indicator of how you do set up the ground and the, the pressure that your, your forwards uh, are putting on and, and making the job of your defenders a whole lot easier. So I'll be looking at that. By extension of that, though, I'll also be looking at the the number of kicks and uncontested marks we allow our opposition as an indicator of are we allowing them to just have free reign with the ball, control the football, have easy um, kick mark, kick mark, or are we actually putting on more pressure and, and forcing them to kick down the line more often? Are we forcing them to turn the ball over more often? Uh, and then the other one will be marks inside 50, which again I think is is less about the ability of our defenders to spoil, more about the way that we set up the ground and the pressure that we kick on, uh, that we we put on and force them to kick to to contests and the like. So I'll be looking at that. I'll also be looking at the number of inside fifties that we're we're having per match. Uh, we were we were really low. We we're fifteenth in twenty twenty two for getting the ball inside fifty. And you talked a little bit about how we were careful with the ball in in twenty twenty two and had that really high kicking efficiency. I, I think that's just a. a a lot to do with the confidence we had in moving the ball forward. And I think also some of our ineffectiveness in defending meant that we we almost defended by maintaining possession. So it sounds like we'll be playing a bit more of a direct style of football and inside 50s will, will be a good indicator of that. We were 12th last season for um, – sorry, 15th last season for inside 50s, but we were – fifth for marks inside 50. So when we did get it in there, we were actually, you know, a pretty good chance of scoring. Uh, Peter Wright, um, who we'll touch on a little bit, I won't steal the thunder there, was a really big part of that. Uh, so so there's that. And then, then the last one that's not in the numbers, so it's probably going to be a bit more of an eye test, but that's the goals that we concede late in quarters. So I think, you know, being able to to keep an eye on that will be, uh, will determine whether or not we're improving our ability to close down games to shut down contests to reinforce to force repeat stoppages late in quarters to slow the game down and then also whether or not we're rotating our mids more uh, because uh, you know we we did see real fatigue in our midfielders towards the end of quarters. I think it's a really important point you bring up there at the end there, especially given what you highlighted in your Twitter thread uh, the past couple of days where you, you highlighted how Essendon's zone was breaking down. That's that's a concentration and and fatigue issue right there that the, the team is falling down or people feel that they're because the ball's right, not right next to them. They're not involved in the play. I think you pointed out that in the play that you, you mentioned where Collingwood sort of moved the ball quite comfortably through our zone into their forward line that you, you spotted Sam Durham sort of just jogging down the bottom of the screen, down the wing. And, you know, if he'd pushed down hard, he could have influenced that play at any of the point, any of the other points within within that play, and so that just sort of suggests about the player's maturity and intelligence in terms of knowing when it's their time to go. And I guess if they are able to get on top of that and get that concentration and that focus towards the end of the quarters and a game that relies on fitness, then you can hopefully see less of those red time goals uh, that Essendon conceding. All right, well, let's move on to the next question. Now, these both come from Michael Pedler. Uh, they're focused a bit more on on the specific players. And his, his first question is about, uh, with a lot of inside contested ball types, who misses out? So uh, he he considers that Parrish, Caldwell, Hobbs, Shield, Setterfield, as well as potentially others play the same role. And they may be limited to uh, outside roles outside of that inside mid position. And then he's also asked about Reed and Cox, uh, their injuries and, and how they're progressing. And the fact that there's been little uh, internal hype about these guys and he's a bit concerned about that. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I don't think you can have too many good midfielders on your your list you know, within reason, but I don't think we had anywhere near enough midfield depth on our list last year. We, you know, we we really saw it drop away pretty quickly when Shield and Parrish and the likes went in. So particularly now that, that McGrath is also moving into a into a halfback role where you know he he arguably plays his best football. So yeah, I, I don't I don't see that as a problem. Or if it is one, I think it's a good one to have. Ultimately, you know, depth wins flags. Uh, you know, uh, Geelong in the uh, preliminary final had a 
an injury last year and they replaced him pretty much like for like and, and didn't miss a beat. So, you know, it is important that you bat pretty deep in that inside your 22, but also in your list because we will have injuries along the way and, and having guys knock the door down through the VFL, I, I think is a really healthy thing. So if that means that, you know, Setterfield or Parrish or one of them, um, well, probably not Parrish to be honest, but, um, but Perkins or Hobbs or, or whatnot has to spend a stretch in the VFL to find form and knock the door down, then I think that's ultimately a good thing. The other thing that – or two things that happen when you've got guys playing good footy in the VFL is it, it puts pressure on the guys that are in the seniors to, to maintain form. But it also means that when they do come in, they really hit the ground running and, and they come in full of confidence. And we saw that with um, – Brandon Zirk Thatcher last year, he he really had to work hard for his spot and and he played a five or six-week stretch in the VFL of granted a different position. I know we're talking about midfielders, but um and then when he did come in, he he really announced himself and had a had a really strong year. And and you know, picking guys in form and confidence says a lot. I expect we'll see Brad Scott rotate the midfield more than we did in 2022. Uh, much to my frustration, we've spoken about that a lot. Uh, just to to provide some further context on that, the Bulldogs, obviously, I think everyone would acknowledge, have the deepest midfield in the AFL. They had one midfielder attend more than 60% of centre bounces last season, and that's of those games that they played in. It's not accounting for the for games that they didn't. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a relevant statistic. And that was McRae, who's probably the best con- contested midfielder in the competition. He he attended sixty four percent of of the centre bounces that he he was um, he of games that he played in. No one else was above sixty. The Cats only had two, and that was Guthrie at sixty four percent and Dangerfield at sixty one percent. And everyone else was sort of low fifties and dropping right down to a number of guys that were around the twenty to thirty percent mark. We had three, and they're alarmingly high. Uh, Merritt was in at 68% of centre bounces. Shield was 70, and Parrish was 76. I haven't looked through all teams, but I wouldn't mind hazarding a guess. Besides Ruckman, that's the, the highest in the competition. We really do need to share the load a lot more, and I'm not... I'm not trading anybody. I'm, I'm picking the guys that are in the best form, and then I'm rotating more. And we'll talk about it uh, more next week. We're going to do a, an episode... Uh, trying to pick a team for round one. I've got a midfielder, our seventh forward acting as a as a, in the midfield rotation. So whether that's someone like Merritt or Shield playing, you know, rotating half forward midfield bench or, or the like, I, I think that's um, something that we, we look to do this year or I would at least do. Um, in terms of Cox and Reid, I, I don't know, mate, I'm, I'm not privy to any inside information. So, um, yeah, really sorry, Michael, that I can't be a little bit more specific. But what I do know is is that we're taking a more conservative approach to the rehab of players, especially young players. And, and perhaps that's a sign that we've learned our lesson from last year where we had guys with repeat injuries. And this sort of thing does happen with tools, unfortunately. I think we're just going to need to be patient with them. They're only in their third year of their career I don't think we need to be in a rush. We know they're supremely talented. Jones is the other one that we can add to that list who's in his fourth year. Uh, but, you know, McKay and uh, and Kerno are good examples in at Carlton. They were quite slow to, to get up and running. Um, yeah, I, I think we, we're just going to need to to be patient and and, um, and cross our fingers to an extent. But I, I don't sense from from what I've observed and and the little bits that I have heard that there's anything to really be worried about. We're just taking our time to get them right. And yeah, I I think that's exactly what we should be doing. I agree with that. Uh, Moving on to our our final set of questions from our listeners. Uh, Again, we've sort of combined these two because I found that they linked together. The first is from Proud Aussie. Um, Seeing a lot of stats and the eye test show that our center clearance work was pretty elite, which we've sort of discussed earlier in the show. And yeah, unless it resulted in a mark to someone like uh, Peter Wright, the ball came out at a rapid rate. Um, He wants to see us use our field position to create scoring opportunities and protect our defense and whether we agree with that. And then sort of building on that, Steve Mack asked, Waller aside, who is the leading candidate for our small forward and why isn't it Tex? I think both of these link together because the small forwards are really key that when you do get that center clearance and move it into the forward line, when you don't take that mark, they're the keys to locking the ball in and getting those repeat chances to have shots on goal. So if you think about your center clearances, you know, one, if it's a shallow forward entry, it's likely to be bounced straight back out. And we often see that when the clearance is one out of 
the back of the centre bounce from goal and the players rushed into a kick. I think you often saw players like like a parish, you know, get the ball around the back and then rush the kick and the ball would sort of land around the 50 metre line. And if there wasn't a mark there, it was quite easy for the ball to be moved out of the defence. And secondly, when we get out the front of the clearance, this is where the lack of small quality forward presence came into it. Because as Proud Aussie said, if the ball wasn't marked, it was difficult for the ball to stop, um, difficult for us to stop the ball being rebounded easily. So you can already see that the club is looking to rectify that. It's obviously got a lot of small forwards on the list. I have six people who I consider the main ones. So Guelphie, Waller, Snelling, Menzi, Wanganeen, and Jaden Davey, as well as I think at least three players who could they use in that position. We saw uh, Hobbs and Massimo both play that role uh, to varying degrees of success, success last year. And Alwyn Davey, uh, you know, he's probably more of a midfielder, but as a way to bring him into the side, that would be something that could be done and he could use his skill set in that area. I think players will be given a chance to show that they can play that role which if it's, as we've heard, it sounds like it, it might be a long uh, long kicking game plan. That sounds like what we're implementing. Uh, it's going to be more crucial than ever towards success having those good small forwards. Uh, as to as to Tech specifically, I think he came off the SSP list and, the, you know, he played a handful of games and the club obviously rates him given they gave him two years after starting an interrupted first season. So, you know, if they were a bit more unsure about his his quality, you probably would have only got one one year. So the fact they've given two is a real uh, demonstration that the club thinks he, he's a player and a player that could be quite important to us going forward. You know, obviously coming back from injury, I, don't, I think it's pretty doubtful that he'll start round one, but as he's going to be given as much of a chance as anyone else to fill that role. Yeah, I think, yeah, some really good observations there, mate. Then back to the, the, the question, I don't think it's just the eye test either uh, in terms of, you know, our, our entries inside 50, the data certainly supports it. And I touched on an earlier 12th in the competition for going inside 50, but fifth for marks inside. And, and Peter Wright was the sixth uh, best in the competition. So, uh, yeah, it, it was it was very much Peter Wright marks it or, or from time to time, Jake Stringer gets out of the back. Uh, but then when it came out fast and that that example you're, you gave that I shared last night on Twitter, it, that wasn't, from an inside 50, it was one of those examples of where we couldn't get the ball in. So we had to to kick from the wing to a dangerous position instead of moving the ball faster from half back and getting into a position where we could kick the ball inside 50 and get the ball deeper. And what it did mean was, well, two things. We had some players that switched off. Um, so we lost the ball, heads dropped. And if you do look, get a chance to look at it, you see – uh, you know, and they're all uh, predominantly young players, right? Durham, um, Martin, Hobbs, all heads down and then sort of jogging to to go and move into defence. But also some senior guys. Langford uh, was really slow to react, react. Snelling pretty much didn't react at all and that was his bread and butter uh, in 2021. So that switch from offence to defence needs to become instinctive and and then also deep entries mean that you've got the, the opposition pinned into an area that's hard to get out of instead of having access to the whole ground. Uh, so, yeah, lots of room for improvement there. Uh, and I think they go hand in hand that that how we move the ball a lot as well with how we defend the ground. Uh, and then in terms of the question on our small forwards, uh, we'll we'll pick this up in a bit more detail uh, next week. We're going to have a go at picking a team for round one rather than a best 22. I think, I mean, my view is we've probably got a best 10 and then we've got a lot of guys that are, you know, young and developing and, and we're still unsure about and, and they'll rotate in and out. But uh, it sounds like Guelphie's going to miss the rest of the preseason with his calf injury or, or at least a large portion of it. So that probably rules him out for round one. Uh, you know, we, we learn our lesson from bringing bikes from cars back last year. So I think if I'm picking the team at the moment, I've got all things being equal, Walla and Menzi as my two small forwards. And then like I mentioned, my third will be our, effectively our seventh forward and that'll be a midfielder that that rotates there. But it, it won't be a, a like it was last year, a midfielder who's playing as a half forward. It'll be a, a midfielder who's rotating through half forward uh, and and in the midfield. So, you know, it, it'll be a, a number of guys having a turn, Perkins, Shield, uh, Merritt, et cetera, um, uh, with a bit of a focus on guys who can who can tackle well, I guess. Yeah, as, as you said, something we're going to talk about next week and then we'll obviously get to see more of where the club thinks 
is going to fill that role through the practice the practice matches. Uh, but just again, thanks to everyone who submitted questions. I really appreciated it. Probably something game we'll do throughout the year, I guess mid-season and, and post-season are the obvious places where we will address audience questions. But if you ever do have a question that you'd like covered in the show, please just send it to us. You can obviously contact us on Twitter. That's where we're most active. But if, you want, if you're if you not on Twitter and you want a way to send it to us, uh, our email is donthestat, all one word, at gmail.com. So if you'd like to send us a question that way, we can also address it from there as well. But just before we wrap up, there's one final question that you you posted. Uh, do you want to go ahead and ask that? And I'll go into my answer before you address it yourself. Yeah, we'll, we'll flip the normal proceedings and, and I'll ask it of you. Uh, yeah, we, this is a question that you always ask uh, guests at the at the end of an interview. So I thought it was probably timely that that you and I have a, a go at answering ourselves. But uh, you know, we're a bit of water under the bridge since all the things that went down at the end of last season. How are you feeling about the current direction of the club? So I've I've made the mistake in previous years of of buying into a lot of the preseason hype. You know, you're only playing and training against yourself, so it, it's quite often quite easy to look good and everyone looks a superstar in preseason training. So I made a commitment that I wasn't going to read into too much coming out for the noise of the club. I think interviews like the Brad Scott one and some of the things the players have said, you know, suggest that they are trying to dial down expectations, at least externally. Uh, they, they might have higher expectations based on what they're seeing internally at training. There is a lot to be positive about in terms of players. It sounds like players like Shield and, and Martin are in, ripping touch. I'm really liking the focus on development. The fact that club has invested in new coaches, it means they're investing in their people and their talent. And I think the simplification of the game plan should hopefully lead to more consistent and immediate results. Uh, So I guess I'm positive, but I don't want to be making a definitive judgment on that until we see some actual games. How about yourself? Yeah, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's a, a big Essen fan on on Friday, and and he actually articulated in in a way that that sort of resonated with me, and I, I feel much the same. His his sentiment was that he feels about seventy percent of the way there in terms of uh, you know the direction that we're heading in, and, and the other thirty percent for him is is going to be proven in how we actually play and 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 what the performances look like you know it's uh, and yeah I, I think that that did a better job of of what I could have done in articulating how I feel I'm I'm much the same I think all of the on-field decisions that we've made and the investment that we've put into football I'm really positive about it and I feel like we've moved uh, you know we're we're starting to take things seriously now and and it's been well overdue and, and uh, I, I made the comment yesterday. I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm I'm less concerned with how we got there because I think when you make the level of change we did, it's never going to be clean. When when people are losing their jobs, you're exiting people out that have been there a long time. There's going to be blood spilt, and and that's just the uh, a fact of it. There's going to be factions of supporter bases and. Uh, you know, uh, different groups around the club and, and media outlets that are going to poke fun, opposition fans, all of that. Change is never clean. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm less concerned, as I said, with with how we got there than the fact that we actually got there. I think that's the important and one. And, and I think the, the CEO appointment's been a good one. I, I've, I think, you know, Brad Scott of those that are available feels to me like he's the right choice because of his experience. Coming to a big club like Essendon with the weight of expectation we've got and with the, uh, the the fact that we've been starved of success, that that's not a, a job for the faint of heart. And I think it, it probably does take someone with Brad's experience to pull that together. And what he's done is surround himself with really good people and really good coaches. And the other thing that I like is that there's a real good blend of Essendon and non-Essendon people. I think in the past we've made the mistake of going, you know, post Sheedy we went with Knights. Knights and Peter Jackson, particularly Knights, didn't have the the strength to or confidence in himself to really take ownership of 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 that and and cleared out a lot of the Essendon people. And then I, I think a different, you know, under Heard, we probably went the other way and it was all about bringing a lot of Essendon people back. And I think Brad Scott's got a really good blend. You know, Blake Carousella's there, Michael Hurley's there, Brent Stanton's there, but then we've got, you know, Ben Jacobs recently out of the game, Travis Clark recently out of the game. 
Jan Siracusa, not that far removed from the game, but also been an assistant coach at another club. Uh, Craig Vozzo's got the experience of, of West Coast as well. So I think there is a really nice blend now of, of Essendon uh, people and non-Essendon people. I think that's important. Uh, the rest, mate, is going to come down to, to how we play and what that looks like and, and ultimately seeing a more even performance. There'll be... There'll be wins, there'll be losses, but I would hope that the gap between our best and our worst um, closes significantly and, and that'll that'll fill the other 30% for me. Great answer. Well, look, that sort of brings us to the end of the show tonight. Again, really enjoyed speaking with you about the audience questions that we got and, and some of the other ideas there. And I think, you know, you've done a great job of building me up again. You know, as, as I said, I was trying not to be po- too positive and, after what you said, I'm starting to the lid's starting to come off a little bit in terms of the positivity there. Uh, but just before we do end, I just want to thank the new patrons that joined our Patreon site since last time. I named them, and they are Jonathan, not you. So I'm assuming it must be someone else. No, or no, Jonathan. it wasn't me, mate. It wasn't you. Uh, Frank Levy and Daniel Pickett, thank you so much for your support. Uh, if you are interested in joining our Patreon, uh, you can find the link in the description to this show. I am recording our next interview this Saturday night if my six-month-old will cooperate with me and, and sleep through in the in the evening and that'll come out on the Patreon early next week and then be released in the general feed a couple of weeks after that so you do get early access to that and if you did see Jonathan's work on Twitter where he's starting to uh, improve his video editing skills uh, that's the sort of thing you can look forward to as well uh, with the Patreon exclusive videos that we're looking to put out during the season um, there. Now, next week's episode, as we've been hinting across the episode tonight, is we're going to be picking a side to play round one. We actually, you actually set this up last year and we selected our side. And I think it'd be interesting to look at what we selected at that point last year and then look at where we're at now as well. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. It will be our view. It's, so it's not a predict a prediction. It'll be you and I uh, sitting in a match committee meeting, trying to agree on on a side to take on the Hawks. So that should be good fun. As long as you let me get my way, mate. Uh, no, it, it'll be it'll be awesome. I'm looking forward to it, and and it's good to be talking about footy related things on field related things than off field so yeah should be fun uh yeah thanks again mate for all your hard work in pulling this all together and and thanks again to everyone who shared feedback asked some really great questions uh uh, ahead of tonight's show it's been great fun thinking about it and, and putting those answers together so hopefully we did your questions justice absolutely thanks everyone go dons